Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. My name is Robert. I am the Communications Director for Ministry to State. Uh, here with me, uh, as always, is my very good friend and colleague, Will Stockdale, also a, uh, a ministry associate with Ministry to State. A pretty crazy day. Will, talk to us about all that GameStop stock that you you bought up. Oh, you know, me and my gaming <laughs> addiction that I have can't get over Crash Bandicoot and the Wrath of Cortex. I could always beat the first two bosses. It was the third one. Uh, I did buy my first Game Boy Color from GameStop. I bought that nice. in a Star Wars game, but that's not what you asked about. Um, <laughs> this has little to do with the rest of the show, but we are in the midst of something of a wild ride here as uh, GameStop's stock as of just today alone is up to $342 per share. Um, and it's about 131% from yesterday. Uh, and this comes amidst it being around valued around $20 a share just earlier this week, I believe. Uh, it was around $30 a share earlier this week. And then, uh, uh, and so this has, it's, it's drawing comparisons to like the, the tech bubble uh, that burst in the 90s. But um, it is it is uh, having other effects in that Amazon is or not Amazon, <laughs> AMC is kind of this week's uh, the the up. darling pick that everyone's doing right right it's kind of like a hobbyist investing these people the people who are investing aren't normally investors they just love GameStop and are bitter at the shorting that's going on out there you know it's kind of funny like GameStop is one of those places that has such a like a a cherished place in. Uh, millennials hearts. I mean, I used to go to GameStop and there was one right, right by my house. And I used to go up there and you had to, at that time you had to reserve your copy of the new Madden or the new NCAA football that was coming out. RIP to that game. And you actually had to like reserve a copy. You paid extra to hold your copy so they wouldn't sell out. Um, and then, you know, everyone had those great moments as a kid. You, you bring like your giant stack of old video games it represents probably, you know, $300, $400 that you've invested in this pile and you go to trade it in and it comes out like you've got 25 cents of store credit. Everyone remembers that. I, I, GameStop is one of those places. So like when this all stuff, this stuff started happening, what cracked me up was all of these Reddit threads of people who you can just tell are like they're gamers. They love GameStop. They've got fond memories of it and they're they're kind of, saying like, sorry, we're going to jack up the price. It's just, it, it is the weirdest uh, business story I've ever read. Yeah, the question is how long does the ride last before this implodes? It's fun just because it's GameStop, I think, and remembering the allure of GameStop, whether it was in a <laughs> mall or in a standalone place. Yeah. It's crazy. It, yeah. And like Will said, this has nothing to do with the rest of our show. It's just, it's one of these things that like everyone's talking about on Twitter. Everyone's just kind of laughing. It's, it's, it also has a lot of, I think to, not to get too serious about it, but I think it does have this sort of like um, populist flavor to it. It kind of feels like the, you know, the, the average Joe at home who's on Reddit and plays COD against the wall street tycoons. It's kind of got that element to it. Um, which obviously we're living in a time where there's a lot of that populist streak uh, in people, the anti-elite, the anti-institution sentiment. Um, and so I think it, it's one of those stories that, you know, it's got a little bit of everything for everyone um, right now. Yeah. 
that's uh, that's it. We'll see what happens. Maybe next week we'll come back and maybe it'll be Blockbuster next time. Who knows? Maybe we'll resurrect uh, Black Blockbuster from the dead. I'm sure that's what people are thinking right now. I was like, hey guys, GameStop is kind of like Blockbuster. Everyone just downloads the games anyways. They're, they're, you don't need to buy them in person anymore. So I, who knows? Anyways, um, but uh, I guess we should transition now to what we really want to talk about. Um, is and that that's something uh, that. It, it kind of builds on a lot of conversations we've had, Will, you and I um, offline. And then uh, just kind of, I think, maybe just a general thrust of the show. One thing that you pointed out uh, just before we started recording was that, you know, we've never done an episode on discipleship or at least specifically talked about or dedicated a whole episode to it. Um, and right now we're in a time, Will, you can tell me if this is the case for you. Like I have heard this question sort of raised and then answered by a lot of people in sort of evangelical circles. And that is, what is the greatest threat facing the church? Now there's a ton of assumptions that are coming to that question and maybe we can get into those, but it's usually asked and then that, so that that person can then answer. And I think over the, the weeks, we've gotten a lot of answers. And so my, before I kind of tell you, tell you what, I, what I've heard, I'd like to hear your thoughts. So first off, have you heard that question being raised a lot? And then what have, what are some of the answers that people have given you? Um, yes, I'm, I'm in the same place you are. I have heard that a lot. There is a lot of language around threats to the church, which I don't know if I even like the language of threats to the church because threat seems to put, put the church in a, in a, in a dire vulnerability where it, it could be, uh, receive a death swipe of some kind. And I don't, that, that's not true. That's impossible. That can never and will never happen. There are things that can sicken the church, perhaps that can weaken it, but not threaten. And I, I don't know, maybe that's just splitting hairs. Maybe that's semantics and it's not really that important, but um, I do feel like the word threaten is a little strong to use when talking about the issues facing us. I, I've heard, I mean, there, there are the usual suspects there uh, on one side, people say critical race theory is the most dangerous um, idea facing the church. Another is Christian nationalism is the greatest danger facing the church. And I'll say this, in both instances of critical race theory and Christian nationalism, both of them have acted out in uh, and led to violence of some kind, not even just talking about the Capitol, wherever this happened, there have been Christians who have supported both, who have supported both forms of extremism, uh, whether it was a summer or in January. And, and so I think that, so I, I think basically it's like, okay, well, maybe neither of those are actually what is most threatening the church. Maybe there's something going on behind that. Another that I heard recently from actually a, a PCA pastor, he said that fascism is the greatest threat facing the church. I find that really strange. Um, he was trying to push back and say, look, communism is not the biggest threat facing the church. Uh, fascism is. And I kind of feel like, or he was saying Marxist thought is not the biggest threat that fascism is. And I kind of like, well, I don't know anyone who is like a philosophical fascist. I don't see anyone who's philosophically fascist. I see people who are behaviorally fascist, who act in ways that shut down conversation that uh, align themselves incredibly tight uh, and in a purity of thought and and individuals in a not good way. And by purity, I mean of just one stripe, not um, wholesome. But I think there is still a philosophical Marxism that is that is dangerous. So there, I mean, those are a couple, a few. 
that I've seen, but I think as we'll get to, I don't think that those are actually the biggest areas of concern for the church right now. Yeah. I mean, I think I've heard both of those. I've, I've heard CRT, Christian nationalism. I think another one that's, that's getting a lot of attention right now because of the, um, uh, the publication of uh, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, which is a popular book right now. You might call it like toxic masculinity. Um, I think might be looped in there. Uh, you know, I, I hear these things and I think uh, racism, white supremacy, there's a lot. And I, I think one thing that, that I'm always kind of struck by when, when those answers are given is that those seem so focused on the immediate, they, they, or that's not the right way to say it. They are so quote unquote relevant. These are the, these are the same conversations that are happening in the broader culture. And so they sort of get imprinted over what's happening in the church. And so we see things like um, me, the Me Too movement, for example. Um, and then we sort of look for it in our own churches and we say, hey, look, see, that's, that is that is a bit huge, great, or the biggest threat to the church right now. Or, or we see things like uh, systemic racism and we say, oh, then we point it back into the church. Talks, and we do this with all everything. And that is not in a, I'm not, what I'm not trying to say there is that those things don't exist in the church because the church is, is full of sinful people uh, and, and those sins are present within the church. That, that's absolutely true. Um, but I think if you were to, you know, say, if you were to look at a, a, maybe an early church uh, uh, Christian, what is the greatest threat to the church? You know, their answers, if, if they're thinking of this from the same mindset that we are, uh, they might say things like uh, disease, or they might say uh, martyrdom, or, you know, it, there, there's, those are always dictated by what's going on in, in the present, what's going on in, in current events. Um, and I think what I'm starting to realize, and I'd like what you, I want to see what uh, your thoughts are on this, is that we seem to be so dominated by the greatest threat to the church right now is orthopraxy. But we don't we don't turn and sit and ever make the next step, which is really what the greatest of the church is orthodoxy, which is really what it's always been. What do you, what do you think of that? Um, I think you're right, and I think they 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 go together. Um, to your point about the early church and what would we have said to use the language that people are using now? What is the greatest threat? When we look back two thousand years ago to the early church. Um, I don't think that we would have said Nero or the Romans. Uh, I don't think that we would have said disease or famine. Uh, I don't, I think really what we would have said is the, who do you say I am? The, as in what, 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 what was most important for the church and what was most important to the church leaders when we do read Acts, when we do read people like Polycarp or Irenaeus, is we see that what was most important to them was was believing the truth of who Jesus is and who he said he was. And so maybe maybe with the benefit of some historical hindsight, we can look and say, hey, if there were these really serious issues that were facing the church that were legitimately serious, but we also can identify that what made the early church fathers uh, and church leaders, you know, take it on to Augustine and so forth. What made them so wise and uh, prudential in their actions were that they identified, hey, there's something actually bigger 
going on that we need to make sure we get right here. And it's not just a type of head knowledge, it's not just a type of right thinking, but it's a it's a right kind of belief and like belief in a Jewish sense where it's guttural, like it it gets to the bones and marrow of who we are. So yeah, I, I think that um, the, your example of the early church is a helpful one. And so that that really is a good place to lead into uh, this other part of the conversation because you brought it up and I think it's an excellent point. Um, I mean, what, what what we're talking about is discipleship. We're talking about discipling people into the truths of, of the gospel and, and scripture um, uh, and, and church practice. And one thing that you brought up that I think is, is profound is that we don't often hear that word as much as we hear shaping and forming. And I want to, I want you to kind of tell it, why do you, why do you think that is? Well, look, you, you, you uh, teed, teed me up here. So can I just quote you and what you have said? And, Go for it. Cause I think that your answers is better here than what I would say. Um, and we'll, we'll connect this to our good, our good uh, buddy, not really, but uh, you've all Levin and his place. But <laughs> what what you said, I think it's right that um, discipleship is a hard word. It sounds like discipline. It doesn't sound very pleasurable. Um, shaping and forming is a little more psychological. It's a little more aesthetic in that it, it has an appearance to it. It has a Bowflex body image associated with it. Um, discipleship sounds like suffering. And that doesn't sound very pleasant. So I, I think that's one of the ways. And I, I'll say this. I don't think that people are using shaping and forming as a way to like avoid suffering in there. I don't think that's it. Um, but I do think as we've talked about words a lot this year already, there are ways where the words that we use have certain implications on us. So you brought up the Yuval Levin piece. I, I, I kind of want to talk about that because it's, it's part of this conversation. Um, but for, the, for our readers who may, or for our listeners who may not have read it yet, um, kind of, kind of tell me what was some of your big points that you came out of it from or, or what you got out of it. Well, a lot of it, and this was at the bottom of the article, it was, uh, he's borrowing from his book, um, uh, Fracture Republic and our lack of faith in institutions. Uh, and he, among other institutions that are out there, the church is one that has, um, in many ways, in many places, seeded its role in being a, a high demand forming formative institution. Uh, actually earlier this morning, I read, started reading an article from the New York post about Carl Lentz and their uh, prepaid cards that the pastors were given and kind of the luxurious lives that they were living instead of living a, a pastoral type of life. They, and what they'd done is they had seeded that role of being an example of and being faithful to uh, a life of devotion, um, which doesn't necessarily mean poverty, but it certainly doesn't mean what they were doing either, uh, have seeded that, given that up. And when the world looks at that, when the world looks and says, hey, you guys are um, not, really, not really being faithful to the calling that you've received, what's going on here? And so I think that is one, and, and he basically says that the church needs to, needs to be more confident in making more demands, not less. And I think there are certain denominations that do this really well and others that don't do it very well. Um, 
I think he's probably speaking in a lot of ways of more liberal denominations that don't do a very good job of making demands of orthodoxy. It, basically, and what we've seen from sociological studies is that as churches decline in their how fast they hold to their beliefs and their doctrinal standards, the less and less people keep coming because people are like, I'll just watch Oprah or read The Secret. It's basically the same thing at this point. Why would I wake up early when I could have brunch with some friends somewhere? So uh, there is a need and, and a, a very real importance of the church to be clear on where it stands in its beliefs and what those beliefs entail. And, you know, it's, it is uncomfortable. It is, it does mean rooting out these areas of sin from um, greed and lust to racism and uh, idolatry. Um, there, there are a lot of areas where when we believe correctly, these areas of sin get rooted out. But what did you think? What were your takeaways? Well, I think that one thing that's built into this conversation, and, and I want to be very clear that the, the point of discipleship is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is, that is the point, but that there's this, there's this, it, it, this idea of flourishing, right? Being discipled in hard religion communities. I think that's kind of the term that he uses provides. And my buddy pointed this out to me, who's, he's an, uh, a master's in, in economics and he's, he's written about this. Um, it provides this a tremendous amount of, of social benefit. Um, there's a reason why we still have Amish communities in this country. You know, they, re regardless of all the sort of technological advances that we think have made our life, are, made our lives easier, the Amish have continued to live uh, the, their, their life of, of uh, being free from technology, living the life that they, they want to, and they continue to do it. And people continue to choose to do it. And it's because it, it provides this incredible community that people really feel tethered to and part of. Um, we don't tend to really acknowledge some of those things I, I, when it comes to our own uh, churches sometimes that we may not, I guess I should say it this way. Do we look at our church as providing that sort of community for us? Um, I think speaking from experience, I have often thought of church as sort of one of a many communities that I'm part of. It's the thing I do on Sundays. And yeah, I like, I, I read my Bible and I pray throughout the course of the week, but like church is for Sundays. And that is just so, the more, I, the more I studied, the more I realized that that's just so not the history. That's not the, the heritage of the church. It's just never really been like that. Um, so I think that's something we got, we got to grapple with. I think also the thing that we got to grapple with is that obviously, yeah, like you said, discipling is, is hard. Discipling also takes time in our culture. We've talked about this on our podcast before in our culture of social media and the internet and texting, there is this sort of demand to be it's always acting. We always have to be responding to events. And when I think about discipling, I, I'm more and more convinced that the, the act of discipling takes a long, long time in order to prepare you for the day when something happens. And in the meantime, that may mean you don't have to respond to every little thing that happens. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sort of, of sort of saying like, um, okay, obviously what's going on in our politics seems really fraught right now. I don't think the answer is to say, okay, here's the right orthopraxy, here's the right orthodoxy, like tackle it at the same time. I think if we want to see a difference in our, in our politics and our, in our culture, it's going to have to take time to really 
turn inward and think about what do we believe? What, what is it that is truly uh, ordering how I think about these things? There's all this sort of like political theology on the fly. And I don't know if that's the right way of, of doing things. No, I hear you. You're making a strong case for virtue ethics here and the cultivation of a, a personality of, of morality, of one that seeks to allow what is right and wrong not to be situational, but kind of in, in the bones and in the heart that um, N.T. Wright wrote a great book called After You Believe. And he cites these examples at the beginning. And one was of a father whose daughter had uh, gotten caught up in um, during a rainstorm and had, had almost drowned and his run to save her. And you find out that his quick instincts to do that in such like an extreme situation were because of training that he'd experienced earlier on in his life. Now, any father would want to save their daughter, but to have the ability to save their daughter is another thing. And he did because of training that, and he uses that to kind of tee up the rest of the book. I, you know, talking about discipleship specifically within the church, we're all going to be discipled by something. And I think there are a lot of negative places where we are discipled. Maybe we can talk about that in a couple minutes, but remember that the source of our discipleship, what we have tangibly before us is the word of God is scripture, all 66 books, the old and the new Testament. It is meant to be searched. And something I've been thinking about this year so far is the way that the canon, the old and new testaments together create the church community. Um, Charles Hill makes a point in a book that he wrote called Who Chose the Gospels? And he comes up to the end, and basically his conclusion is like, if you were to ask a first century Christian who chose the Gospels, they would look back at you and say, what do you mean? None of us chose it. The apostles gave us to them, and God gave these words to the apostles. And then out of that, we are shaped by the Holy Spirit. So the there's the canon, there's the community, and there's the Spirit that connects them both, who makes them and shapes and forms the community. So when we study scripture, when we memorize it, when we talk about it, when we read it and listen to it, um, if the canon is what the early church believed and to take it back to their church again, what were they most concerned about, right? If, if, the, if the canon is that and what people like Michael Kruger or Charles Hill would say that it is, then when we, we do those things, something very exciting and imaginative and metaphysical, spiritual uh, dynamic is occurring within us and within each other, and that we are being shaped and molded and formed. And I, um, I think that's important to, to allow to take place also. And I, and I think, interestingly enough, if we don't consider that, if we just view scripture reading as a rote memorization then we miss out on a lot of what God is trying to do in that he is retelling the covenant events that have occurred. Mount Sinai, the Lord's Supper, right? Those, these covenant events that are, that are documented and central uh, and how they affect us as believers. No, I think that's totally right. The, the idea of being able to situate yourself within the story and understand your role and your place in it is, is incredibly important, but you can't do that until you know the story. You, you, you have to spend time it, under good leadership and under good uh, wisdom and preaching and uh, uh, to do that. And also to, to really, in, in some sense, take an initiative to, to fit yourself within the situation as well. I mean, in the story as well. I mean, taking time to, to study your, your scripture 
um, to read good books, to spend time in community groups, praying and, and discussing with one another what's going on in their lives and, and learning, you know, what it means to really be a, a servant uh, of your fellow brother and sister to, to be the lowliest. Um, you know, you talked about, you did a great job talking about sort of, you know, uh, uh, Bible, biblical literacy and, and understanding, you know, your story within the, the covenant story. Um, I think even just simple, you know, we can do much better on this in, in terms of just simple theological uh, statements and, and creeds. Uh, one thing I'm always blown away by is the Ligonier puts out their state of theology uh, survey every year. Um, and every year I'm just more and more amazed by the, the questions and the responses. Uh, this year, the, the thing that just kind of made me crazy uh, was that uh, 26% of self-described evangelicals uh, affirmed, strongly affirmed, uh, the statement, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Um, if you don't believe Jesus is Lord uh, and in control of all things and ruler over all, then yeah, that's kind of why you get things like that happened on the 6th. It's kind of why you get um, a lot of the the destruction that happened during the summer and, and things like that. So um, I, I think that those are always uh, important markers to go back to and realize that before we are sort of training our folks in the pews in our communities to go out and do the right thing, um, we may want to have more time uh, with them, discipling them in the, the in the orthodoxy. Yeah, and I and to emphasize the importance here, there is not another story of which any human is a part. There is one, and maybe it'd be better to say meta story. There is only one meta story, meta narrative, meta history that any person in the created world is a part of. And that's the biblical story. There's not an alternative, which makes it really important. I mean, if we were told that there's only one way to do something, everything else is a failure. Well, we wouldn't spend time trying to do something the other way. That would be, that would just lead to disaster. And uh, so when we talk about finding ourselves within the story, yes, that's true, but we're not going to find ourselves anywhere else. We, it's, it's not going to happen. It's not there. And so to realize what is given to us by a loving God who says, hey, I kind of want to help you out a little bit. I want to give you something that I think will work. Um, it's, it's, it's a true blessing and, and should be followed. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's a good time to turn now to a question you brought up earlier, which is, you know, um, so if we're not discipling our folks who are, and I think that that's an important point to make because um, everyone is being discipled by something. Uh it's a matter of what that something is. Um, I think that going back to sort of the popular responses we've heard from folks who have said, you know, what are the greatest threats of the church? They would probably co uh, what would go alongside their, their statements would probably be answers to this question. And they might say things like uh, Donald Trump is discipling uh, people in our pews or they, or cable news, uh, I think is another popular one that people say the social, social media, the internet. What are some of the things that, that you've heard people say, or, or maybe a better question would be, what are some of the things that you do see people being discipled by? Well, <clears throat> I mean, to bring up one that is, is a very dark corner or maybe a slice of the web is something like Pornhub that's out there. I know you had mentioned that. So I'm, you, you'd brought that to my attention as something that is really discipling people. Advertisements. I mean, those are made to be vehicles 
of desire. Those, you know, the areas that you mentioned, social media doesn't just affect how we deal with other people, affects how we view everything in the world and what it's to be used for and how we're to interact with it. Pornhub has effects not just on how we view sexuality, but uh, on how we spend our money, on how we view, yeah, that's not, what is and isn't important, that kind of thing. Um, there are there are a lot. I, you know, it's kind of funny to me, the uh, tests on like BuzzFeed that are which character from this show are you? I mean, in one sense, you know, the old idea of being covered in the dust of the rabbi, of learning and learning to emulate greater than people of us who have gone before without calling it that there is a real sense of discipling people into being a character on friends or Seinfeld or um, what Harry Potter house are you? What Harry, you know, I, I love Seinfeld so much. I will say it was different in that nobody wants to be a character in Seinfeld. Nobody has, <laughs> nobody's complimented by saying, you know, you remind me of George Costanza. <laughs> it's just, it's, it doesn't happen. Uh, or Jerry, I mean, or it doesn't matter. You just, it, you don't want to. So there's something a little different, I think there, but uh, we, we normalize certain behavior based on what we, what we take in and what we absorb. Yeah. I think you got to a point there that I think is important, which is there's things, this is my personal opinion. Uh, and that's that there are things that have been discipling folks in the church, a good majority of folks in the church for a, a long time that have gone unaddressed. People can only have been discipled by Donald Trump for so long. He's only been, you know, in that position to do that for so long. Um, so when that answer gets brought up, I, I have some, I, I guess I would, you know, I would have some questions about that. Um, something that has been discipling folks in America and it's very much so people within the church for a long time is something like materialism. I, I think you could also say small L liberalism. If you don't like that term, you might use something more like individualism. And, you know, that's, I see that stuff creeping in the church and I've seen it creeped in the church my entire life. I mean, you know, just the, the whole narrative of, personal responses to personal calls to be personal, you know, uh, followers of Jesus. I mean, a lot of that is good and right. And we, we should talk about that, but like that, that notion has been so hammered into people that the idea of sort of a community life, uh, life together as a church is sort of the reason why, like I said earlier in the episode, like Sundays are kind of for that part of my life. And then I might have Mondays and through Fridays here. And then that's a very individualized way of looking at your, your life. Whereas I don't know if that's really what the case was in, in the early church. And that's not to say, you know, I'm not making an, a, a call for, you know, socialism or for, you know, uh, communitarianism or, or what have you. But I think it's just things that we need to address and we need to look at, you know, things. And, you know, you brought up Pornhub. What is Pornhub but not the, the greatest disciple of both liberalism and uh, materialism? I mean, it, it, that, that's what it is. It combines the, those two things and it's it is a not a pretty, pretty thing to look at. And I, I think uh, if you were to talk to pastors, or at least let's just say this: if you were to talk to the uh, evangelical leaders on Twitter, and you were to say, "What's the greatest threat facing the church right now?" I guarantee you, none of them would bring up pornography use. It's just not on the top of our heads. And yet, it's something that's just been deeply rooted within the church now. Probably, uh, at least statistically speaking, it's got to be. Um, for a long time now. And 
uh, I wonder about our the church's ability to handle a lot of the issues going on uh, in the world if we're not willing to really confront the the sort of the 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 foxes that are, are that are in the hen house right now. Right, and with that, the, there have been issues that have been unaddressed by the church for a long time, uh, like certain areas of of injustice, and so the church is looking to correct that. What is unfortunate is that it is at the expense of other things that were addressed in the past that have now been kind of abandoned. So we see a replacement of emphasis on sexual ethics to uh, an emphasis more on social ethics explicitly uh, in society. And I think one of the hard parts about being a Christian is holding both of those. And this is why we have to be soaked in scripture. This is why we have to be looking at the whole counsel of God and what God is talking about is that we, we can't, we don't get the choice of talking about one at the expense of the other. I think as the, we have to be willing as Christians to stand up for more than just one particular issue at the time. We don't follow the zeitgeist. Yeah. And I, to maybe stir the pot a little bit, and this is probably a, a, a point where we might say, well, we'll table this conversation and save it for later, because I think this is a whole nother, whole nother thing, but this is in, 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 in sense, this is the argument for a recommitment to confessionalism, uh, a recommitment to uh, denominational confessionalism. Um, you know, if if you're sitting there in, in a church and your 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 response is, okay, we have to be the church that handles this sort of new issue the best. Um, we're going to be the best church on uh, sexual ethics, or we're going to be the best church on on racial injustice, or we're going to be the best church on economic injustice. Well, now you're not really talking about being a denomination or a confession. Now you're talking about being, well, what we want to be the best brand of this sort of bigger conglomerate thing. And I think that this is where, you know, denominations have been really unpopular for a long time. We've really been in the era of, of non-dom, of, of um, uh, go your own way, independent, congregations and that, and I'm don't hear what I'm not saying. That is all, you know, that is all fine and well. Um, some of my best friends and uh, great uh, Christian leaders come out of, uh, come out of that ex- uh, tradition and experience. What I'm just trying to say is that confessions and denominations can do a really good job of focusing people around a core thing. Um, it does a really good job of sort of sucking in all of that energy that's going on outside and saying like, look, throughout the years, this tradition has withered, weathered all of these storms, and this is how we've done it. And it's by a, a commitment to the scriptures. It is by a commitment to covenant theology. It is by a commitment to X, Y, Z. And I'm not saying that that is the right way, although I'm, I'm certainly uh, biased toward it as a, as a Presbyterian. But um, I am saying that I think that model might give us a lot of wisdom regardless of what tradition you come from in this, in this time. Yeah. I think where we are in our conversation, I think that's probably a great place to wrap things up and then to come back next week and talk more about the value of confessions, because there's going to be new social issues. They're going to be new topics to discuss, but I, I hope that as we continue through this year, that we allow ourselves to be shaped, molded, discipled. There by- it is scripture and by the community of faith that we're around. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, 
Well, that's awesome. I think this was, this was great. I, I had a really good time. I, I really appreciate Will's your comments about um, a, a lot of this stuff about discipling and, and, uh, and what have you. So with that, well, same, we'll wrap same, same for you. And I always grateful for you bringing these things to my attention to think about new areas, corners that I hadn't previously considered. For sure. Well, with that, we'll, we'll wrap up. So thank you again for listening to the Will and Rob show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. Will is at Stockdale Will. Uh, visit ministryofstate.org and check out uh, all the new devotionals and content that we have there. Keep an eye on your GameStop stock, and we'll see you guys again later.